Hey, welcome to First Baptist Church Online. My name is Steve Polk, and I'm executive pastor here at First Baptist. And I'm really excited about you joining us for this two-part series. Today, you're going to get part one, and it's entitled The Best Way to Help Our Kids. You know, one of our core values at First Baptist is to strengthen families. And so today, you're going to get a message straight from God's Word that's going to help you as a parent, a future parent, even a grandparent, and how uh, you can best help your kids. So I really want you to dial in today. Go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word, a notepad and a pen, and get ready to take some notes. We're going to be in some various places in the Old Testament today and really help us understand our role as parents, our role as adults in the lives of kids, and how we can best help them. And again, this is part one, so you're want to, going to want to dial in this week and then pick up this second half of this message next week. So let's pray together as our pastor comes. God, we thank you for kids. Uh, we are constantly in a place of investing and in growing the next generation. And as believers, as followers of Christ, uh, it's our responsibility to invest in young people, to see them come to faith and, and, and to trust you and to grow in their walk with, with you as a, as a believer, and then to lead their families well. So today, as our pastor comes, I know the message he brings is with a very much a, a heart of love uh, for families, not out of a, a, an expectation of perfection, but is to grow and to improve, and that we can always uh, improve in our leadership in our home. So today, I pray that you'd bless our time and the conversations that will follow. In Jesus' name, amen. Our country today is facing many challenges, and you know, at the very top of that list is the disintegration of the nuclear family. Kids in our country today are, you know, they, they face so many challenges and issues. We understand there are too many kids who are being raised by their grandparents uh, in single parent homes or homes where there's absent fathers or absent mothers. Families struggling to struggling to get by economically, which affects their kids. And, and locally in the school district, and this is true around the country, there are kids who don't have a, a, a place that they know they're going to be sleeping there every night for the school year. They move from this place to that place. They, they have a form of homelessness, if you will, some staying in motels and, and just getting by. And all of this impacts our children. And thinking about that, I was speaking recently with social workers who serve kids, especially through our school district. And they're aware of all these issues because they deal with them all the time. But they, they shared some things with me that really I had not thought about. Uh, one of the issues that a lot of our kids that are struggling in school and that social workers are having to help and help their families is, is this, this issue of materialism and, and instant gratification. We, we know that's a problem in our materialistic culture. We, we, we face it in our families where both parents are present and there's a good income, but even poor kids are struggling with the pressure of materialism and instant gratification. Um, they, you know, the, the, the status that comes when you wear a certain name brand of clothing or a name brand of uh, tennis shoes and they can't afford it, but other kids have it and they feel that pressure. And when parents come into money, for instance, they get their tax refund rather than using that 
cash to pay a deposit on a better place to live or to pay their utility bills or buy food so they'll be okay for the next few weeks. They'll sometimes spend it to either buy that child what he or she wants or buy something the parent him or herself wants. And 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 then when they spend the money on that materialistic stuff because they have to have it to be happy, they're told, and they feel then they're no better off than they were before because they didn't improve their situation. These social workers talk to me about the the generational issues that create problems, these family dynamics and and behavior patterns of adults that have been passed down one generation after another. So many many parents don't know how to deal with stress, don't know how to deal with frustration, don't know how to deal with anger, and and their parent did not know how to deal with it, and their grandparents didn't know how to deal with it, and those those issues are just passed down. And so when, when they're angry and when life is hard, they, they rather than affirming those children and encouraging them, they lash out at them with harsh words and, and, and it hurts the, the confidence of those kids and their self-identity. And then those kids sometimes act out, act out in school, act out in public to get attention because they just want someone to love them, someone to pay attention to them. Or they see their parents go to the school office and talk to a teacher maybe or do something out in public at a restaurant or store where the parent gets angry and just lashes out. And then these kids learn those behavioral patterns that have been passed down generation after generation and they make bad choices and get in trouble. All of us in our families today are dealing with the problems created by social media. And that's true in poor families. Parents feel overwhelmed and they just give up. There's nothing I can do about it, they think. Or they're unaware of the challenges and the dangers and the risks their kids face. And uh, they, they don't do anything because they don't know they need to. And, and the truth is our kids, for the most part, are on their own when it comes to navigating the dangers of social media. And these kids need the help of mature parents. The truth is that many of these parents need people to help them as well because many of these issues are generational. They've been passed down from one generation to the other. But let's be honest. You and I face those same issues in our Christian homes. We, we, we face those same issues. Maybe it's on a different scale. Maybe there's some differences in the dynamics and the circumstances, but it's the same issues. And, and those of us who follow Jesus Christ have an additional burden. That additional burden is, is, is in addition to dealing, dealing with all these other issues, we want our children to grow up loving Jesus. We want our children, when they become young adults, to continue loving Jesus and stay in the church. So the big question we need to ask ourselves is this, what can we do to help our kids? What can you do to help your children? And that's what I want to talk about today and next Sunday. And I'd like to begin by reminding us of a principle that is found in scripture. And this principle is that what one generation does impacts the next generation, that what parents do to great measure shapes what their children do. The Bible makes it clear that parents matter, that parents are important. We impact our kids and we do it either for good 
or for bad. In the book of Exodus chapter 20, when God was giving the Ten Commandments, in verse 5, part of what he said was, I, the Lord your God, and, and this is after giving the commandment to not have any idols, to worship him only. He said, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Listen to this. Visiting the iniquity, the sin of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation. Now, does that mean that if a parent sins that God judges the children and the grandchildren and the generations to come for that sin? Sometimes that is true. But quite often what it means is that God judges us by allowing us to experience the consequences of our sinful choices, of our unwise choices, of our bad choices. And that's where this generational problem comes. Parents and grandparents sin. Parents and grandparents make bad decisions. Parents and grandparents develop bad habits. And it's passed down from one generation to the next. And there are too many kids in our culture today, it seems as though the odds are stacked against them. They need help, but they're not getting it the way they need it at home. But what about you? You consider yourself perhaps to be in a stable environment, a stable family, a stable home. You make a good income. Maybe you're not as rich as you would like to be, but you're not poor. You're able to pay your bills and provide for your children, so you're in a stable situation. But let me ask you, if you, in a stable situation, if you knew that you were hurting your kids, would you want to know? And a follow-up question, if you discover that there is something in your behavior, something in your lifestyle, something in your attitude that really is hurting your kids, and, and you came to realize that, and you owned it, would you be willing to change your behavior? Would you be willing to do things differently? There's a story in the Old Testament where the parents made a decision, and it was a wrong decision. They paid for it, but so did their kids. And I am convinced from the story that when they were making that decision, they did not realize the impact they were going to have on their children. So I invite you to open your Bible with me to the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, chapter 13. Now, the background for what we're going to read is the Exodus experience of the Jewish people. They have been slaves for a number of years in Egypt, and God sent Moses to deliver them to freedom and bring them to the promised land. There were the miracles of the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, and they make their way to Mount Sinai where God gives them the Ten Commandments that I mentioned a moment ago. And they camp at that mountain for about one year as God gives them the rest of the law and they organize themselves for their journey into the promised land. They begin that journey and they come to a location in the wilderness of Paran, south of the promised land, south of Canaan, a city, a village, a, a water hole, if you will, called Kadesh Barnea. And that's where we pick the story up in chapter 13 of Numbers, beginning at verse 1. Let's read together and allow God to speak to us and allow God to speak to you. Numbers chapter 13, verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan. 
So Moses sends out these 12 spies and they spend the next 40 days checking out the promised land that God has promised to the people of Israel. And they return after 40 days and bring their report to Moses and the congregation. Drop with me in verse chapter 13 all the way down to verse 27 and we'll pick it up with the spies return. They told them, verse 27, thus they told him, Moses, and they said, we went to the land where you sent us. And it certainly does flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Moses and a people of Israel, the promised land is a good land. And we've brought back some of the fruit, some of the things we saw growing there so you can see it for yourselves. But, (laughs) but, verse 28, nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And they go on to describe how the people there are large and our families will die if we attack the promised land and, and, and go and try to conquer it and live there. But two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, gave a good report. Verse 30 in your Bible, if you have it, please. Then Caleb quieted the people. And if he had to get them quiet, that means they were upset and they were making a lot of noise because they, they were afraid they'd heard this negative report. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him, Caleb and Joshua gave a good report, but the other 10 spies We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. And so they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land. Then you go over to chapter 14, and the story continues in verse verse 1. After this bad report, all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. Verse 2. All the sons of Israel grumbled. They complained, if you will, against Moses and Aaron, the high priest, Moses' brother. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness during our journey to Mount Sinai and to Kadesh Barnea. And they go on in verse 3 to say that God brought us here to die by the sword. He brought us here so that our wives and our little ones would die. So they're giving in to fear, giving in to emotions, giving in to negativity, giving in to anger and frustration. But Joshua and Caleb still try to carry the day. Down in verse 6 of chapter 14, Joshua and Caleb, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and their custom, their culture, that was a sign of grief, a sign of repentance, a sign of mourning, a sign of heartache, if you will. Verse 7. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. And if the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only, now listen to this, only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the Fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Remember, it's called the promised land because God had promised it to the people of Israel. 
And yet they are so emotionally blinded by fear, they're listening to the negativity of those who did not have faith, who had forgotten that the promised land was God's promise to his people. Joshua and Caleb are trying to remind them of God's way, of God's promise, of God's power, of God's plan. But they won't hear it because they're reacting in anger. They're reacting in fear. They're reacting in emotions. And they don't listen to God. In verse 10, And all the congregation, all the people of Israel, said to stone them with stones. They didn't want to hear any more of this God stuff. Didn't want to hear any more of this obedience and faith stuff. Let's stone Joshua. Let's stone Caleb. Let's kill them. And then God shows up. And I want you to notice, I want you to notice how God responded to the reaction of the people. Later in chapter 14, down at verse 28, God tells Moses to say this to the people in verse 28. As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing. God says, I heard what you said. So I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all the number of men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, you have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb and Joshua. God said, my reaction, my response to the way you're handling this situation is that all of you who are 20 years old and older will spend the next 40 years, one year for each day the spies spent in the promised land. You will spend the next 40 years wandering in this wilderness, wandering in this desert, and not enter the promised land until every man, every one, each of you who are over 20 years old dies. But what about their children? those who are younger than 20 years old. We'll look at verses 31 and 32. God says, your children, however, whom you said would become prey, you said if we go there, they'll die. God says, you're going to die. Not them. You're going to die here in this wilderness, not there in the promised land, but your children, I will bring them in. I will bring them into the promised land and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Now, you say, preacher, Okay, I get the story. But you're talking about how parents impact their kids. How parents make decisions that has a negative impact on their kids. Here, the parents are going to die, but the kids are going to make it into the promised land. So how did they suffer for what the parents did? Well, look at verse 33. Verse 33. Your sons, your children, shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness. And they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. Now, here's the picture. God was ready to lead the people of Israel, the parents and their children, while they were camped at Kadesh Barnea after the 12 spies had returned from their 40-day spy journey. God was ready then to lead the people of Israel, adults and kids, into the promised land and give it to them so it would become their home. But because of the unbelief and the emotional reaction and the anger and, anger and the sin and the disobedience of the parents, the adults would wander for 40 years in the wilderness and die. But guess what? Their kids would have to spend 40 years in that desert, in that wilderness as well. 
Yes, the kids would one day enter the promised land, but 40 years would pass before that came to pass. And by the time their children entered the promised land, they would be 40 years older. So you take a teenager, someone who was 15 years old. They would be 55 when they entered the promised land. You take a kid who was five years old. He would be or she would be 45 years old before they entered the promised land. In other words, yes, these children would enter the promised land one day, but they would only have a few years, the latter years of life to enjoy it. It would be their grandkids that actually got to enjoy the promised land. And while God was judging and punishing the adults for their wrong decisions, the kids were paying for it because not only was their entrance into the promised land delayed, they would have to spend 40 years, their growing up years and their young adult years and the years they would spend raising their own kids. They would have to spend those years dealing with the hardship of not having a home and wandering around in the wilderness desert south of the promised land for four decades. And so what the parents did at Kadesh Barnea impacted their children. Their lack of faith, the parents' lack of faith and obedience, the parents' lack of emotional maturity, instead reacting emotionally with a negative attitude and with anger, the failure of the parents time and time and time again leading up to this moment to learn biblical spiritual lessons and to spiritually mature, to mature as a disciple of God, their kids paid for it. And every pastor I know is broken, their hearts broken because they are seeing kids pay for what their parents do. Not just economic issues, not just homelessness issues, not just social media issues, not just materialistic issues, but spiritual issues. Parents who do not mature in Christ, who do not grow as disciples of Jesus Christ, who don't learn how to deal with their emotions and their anger and their frustration, who lack maturity, who lack faith, who struggle to obey God consistently. All pastors see kids paying for their parents' spiritual bankruptcy. So what do we do? How do we help our children? Well, next week, I want to share with you four or five things you can do. Today, let me just, in wrapping this message up, share with you two things you can do. Because I believe most parents really do want what is best for their kids. I believe most parents want their kids to grow up loving Jesus and and and, and to, when they're adults, continue loving Jesus and stay in the church. So what do we do? How, how can I help make that happen? What can you do as a mom, as a dad? to help your kids. Well, the first thing is this. Parents who help their children, now listen, parents who help their children set an example of real discipleship. There were two spies who gave a positive report and set a good example for their kids, Joshua and Caleb. 
those two spies lived long enough to enter the promised land. In fact, Joshua would become the man who who succeeded Moses in leadership. Joshua was the leader who brought the people of Israel into the promised land, and his family experienced all of that. And near the end of his life, it's recorded in the Old Testament book of Joshua, chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. Near the end of his life, after they've entered the promised land, Joshua gathers all the people of Israel and he gives his farewell speech to them. And part of what he says is this, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity. I love that. Serve him in sincerity and truth. And truth, not your own opinion, but in the truth of God, the truth of his word. And put away the gods which your fathers. Remember, he's talking to the children and the grandchildren of those who disobeyed God at Kadesh Barnea and died during those 40 years in the wilderness. He said, put away the gods of your fathers, the gods that your fathers served beyond the river on the other side of the Jordan River before we entered the promised land and all the way back there in Egypt, put all that away and you serve the Lord. And then he goes on in verse 15 of chapter 24. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. And then he makes this beautiful declaration of commitment and faith And he says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. From the beginning to the end, Joshua set an example of genuine discipleship, serving God, obeying God, trusting God, not only for the people of Israel, but for his house, for his family, for his children and his grandchildren. You see, serving God in sincerity and truth, being a real disciple is so much more than simply going to church. I know there are parents who bring their kids to church, their teenagers to church because they want a good influence, and I am thankful for that. But brothers and sisters, simply coming to church doesn't do the job. You must set an example of what it means to be a real, growing, dedicated disciple, follower of Jesus Christ. Let me say to you that teenagers and young adults are turned off by half-hearted Christians and by, let me just say it, by parents who are half-hearted in their discipleship. They're turned off by it. Research tells us that young people today want more Bible, not less Bible. They're turned off by parents who don't take their walk with Jesus seriously. And it's one of the leading reasons that young people leave the church when they reach an age they can because they see their parents going to church and claiming to be this, but living something different. And somehow as parents, we've deceived ourselves into thinking that, hey, I'm taking them to church. Shouldn't that fix everything? No. What? What makes a difference is you being a real disciple and setting that example for your kids. And the best advice I can give you is what the Apostle Paul says to all of us in Colossians 3.16 when he said, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. I love that. Let God's word 
richly dwell in me. Too many people who go to church are still like living in poverty when it comes to the word of God. They don't know it. They don't read it. They don't study it. They don't meditate on it. They don't reflect on it. They don't pray about it. And they certainly don't live in keeping with it. Let the word of Christ richly, richly dwell within you. And then he says, with all wisdom and with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I want you to notice there's three things in that passage. There's the word of God. I'm so thankful for our Bible reading plan here at First Baptist. So thankful for our D group ministry. So thankful for our life groups. And I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to be disciplined and get in the word of God. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. But there's also public worship. He talks about teaching and admonishing one another with singing, with singing is worship, worship attendance, not showing up at church once a month or twice a month, but being there every Sunday, being consistent in your worship attendance. But there's also accountability and learning together, learning from one each other and holding each other accountable as disciples in that passage, as he says, in wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, teaching and admonishing one another. One of the reasons that God is using the D group ministry so well in our church is because there's a, there's a, there's a loving accountability when five or six men or five or six women are in a weekly group reading the word of God and discussing it and encouraging each other and praying for each other and holding each other accountable. Sold out to Jesus. It matters. And parents, parents who help their kids grow up to love Jesus. Parents who help their kids continue loving Jesus and being faithful to church when those kids become young adults are parents who are the real deal, who don't just go to church, but they go and participate and serve because they love Jesus and they want to grow as a disciple. They set an example for their kids, not what it means to be a church member, but what it means to be an authentic, obedient, faith-living, serving disciple of Jesus Christ. That's the greatest gift you can give your children. But here's the second one real quickly. Parents who help their children are always teachable. Always teachable. There's this beautiful story later in the Old Testament, the book of Judges chapter 13. God sends an angel to a married woman and tells her she's going to give birth to a son. And her son will grow up to be a man who helps deliver Israel. This is into the future now. Who will help deliver Israel from, from the Philistines who had been battling against them. And she tells her husband. Her husband's name is Manoah. And then her husband prays. In Judges 13 verse 8, the Bible says, Then Manoah entreated the Lord. He prayed to God. And said, O Lord, please let the man of God, the angel, whom you have sent, come to us again. Here's why. That he may teach us what to do for the boy. That he may teach us what to do for the boy, for this child, for the son you're going to give us, who is to be 
born. God, teach us his mom and dad. God, teach us what to do for our son who is a gift from you. The angel returns and gives them instructions and that little boy grows up to be the man Samson. Samson who delivered the Jewish people from the Philistines. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Mom and dad, listen to me. Please take the initiative like Manoah to plead to God. God, teach me, instruct me in what to do that I can be the dad my child needs, that I can be the mom my child needs. Be teachable. Be teachable when it comes to learning better parenting skills and better marriage skills and better communication skills. Be teachable when it comes to dealing with the baggage of your past and the generational stuff that's been handed down to you from your parents and your grandparents that still negatively affects how you do life and how you interact with your kids and how you live. Be teachable. Oh, God, help me change and help me overcome what I inherited that has not been good. Be teachable when it comes to what do I need to do to to grow spiritually, to grow in my relationship with Jesus Christ, to grow as a real disciple. Stop making excuses and pretending you already know everything you need to know. Nobody can teach you anything. Oh, brothers and sisters, dad and mom, be teachable. Allow God to teach you. Allow the word of God to teach you. Allow the church to teach you. Allow me as your pastor to teach you. Others who have grown in Christ to teach you how to grow in Christ. And stop listening to the culture. And stop listening to your friends who are not obeying Jesus. Be teachable. And Jesus said, the greatest commandment is for you to love the Lord your God. With all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Are you doing that? Next week we'll talk about some practical things. But brothers and sisters, if you don't get these things right, to be teachable and to be a disciple, a real disciple, and set an example for your kids, the other things are not going to have as much impact as they need to or they could. I believe you want what is best for your kids. Parents who help their kids set an example of what it means to be a real disciple. And they're teachable. Does that describe you? If it does, then you're on your way to giving your kids the best. If it does not, you may be hurting your kids and not even realize it. What are you going to do about this? God bless you. I'll see you next Sunday.